This evening's reading is Jonah 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amaratai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men tried their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. This is God's word. Thanks, AJ. Thank you for uh, reading. Uh, if we've not met, my name's Matt. Uh, Matt thought it'd be lovely to do so uh, afterwards. I think it was about 15 years ago, last time I preached Jonah, I'd forgotten quite what a lovely thing it is to study the God who oversees and rules this book of Jonah. It's a wonderful thing. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we've already sung that you are the God who saves. We can glorify your grace and mercy. And as we come to look at this narrative then that you've recorded about Jonah, would we understand from one man's wrestling with your mercy and your justice quite how wonderful it is that you're a God who's had mercy upon us, that you're a God who longs to see your mercy spread to the world. With that truth, grasp us, we pray, until we cannot but speak of Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, a few years ago, as a family we were on holiday and we passed through Singapore, I had a few days in Singapore, and uh, uh, terrific. So uh, as soon as we arrived, uh, dumped our stuff and went to the, the National Museum of History, obviously, because history is fun. 
And uh, also, how can you understand uh, a country, a nation, a city-state without looking at its history? You can't. So you have to do that when you go to visit uh, a country. Or, and it's a terrific museum, you know, for only a few years old, whizzy, technical, kind of as you'd expect with Singapore. Uh, lots about food, mm, uh, which is great. But the striking thing is the largest single room in the museum is about the British defeat uh, and Japanese conquest of Singapore in 1942. That's a significant event. I mean, Churchill would have called it the greatest military disaster the British had ever known. But it's clearly in the, uh, in the psyche, and you know, Singaporeans among us knows this, of course, very well, uh, an enormously significant event because after Japanese conquest, there was a period of terror. You know, 50,000 died fairly shortly afterwards in the aftermath. Uh, and therefore, relations between those two nations have always been a, a little awkward in the, for the generation following. It's very striking. That's the largest room. And then you get through that, and it's post-war and city-state in whatever it is, 1965, an economic boom. And those get tiny, piddly little rooms. And you think, wow, I thought that's kind of what Singapore's about. Now, in that museum... The biggest uh, sort of um, exhibition is 1942. And you think, wow, I hadn't realized quite what an impact that has upon a national memory. The next day I went to church. Uh, always good on your holidays as well. But um, uh, uh, And uh, the pastor preaching a terrific um, sermon. And uh, he just made that, he was in Galatians actually, but he made the point uh, by telling a story that uh, he, as a younger man, he was about 50, as a younger man, late 80s, he had married a Singaporean man, a Japanese lady. And his father refused to ever meet her. Because he couldn't get over what had been done to his family, the generation before. He refused to ever meet her. Christian man, Christian family. And the pastor, of course, said how painful that was. Uh, and he and his wife had children. And grandfather refused to ever meet the children. And he told the heart-wrenching occasion he was walking along the street and saw his dad on the same side, w- walking towards him. And he waved at his dad. And his dad saw him and crossed to the other side because his family was with him. He'd speak to his son, but not to the wife, and not to the children. And then he said it was about 15 years after his marriage. Another day, I think we were in the botanical gardens, and he saw his dad. And he thought, oh, what's dad going to do? And the father came over and embraced the children. And after a delay, embraced his wife. As the pastor told it, of course, he said, and that was the day I knew that my father had truly understood the gospel. Been a Christian for decades, the whole of his life. But he'd clearly now encountered in a very real way the God of mercy and could show that to those of a nation who he felt had wronged his family. Now, that's quite striking, isn't it? A man could be a a Christian for 60 years. And it'd take him that length of time 
to understand that God is a God of mercy. His forgiveness is undeserving upon you and on me and on anyone. But through Jesus Christ, anyone can be forgiven. And that's the truth that Jonah had to learn as well in this book. Jonah is a wonderful book about God's mercy. The Lord is a God who saves. His mercy is for all peoples, no matter uh, what race, what background, no matter how wicked they've been. It is a book of grace for people of every different background, upbringing. It's wonderful. And we're meant to be struck by the wonder of God's mercy so that we can't help but share it with others. I guess at heart, the book of Jonah is about how one man through deeply painful experiences, came to truly understand the nature of his God. Here is a prophet, Jonah, who had served the Lord full-time as a minister, if you will, for years. And yet only in this narrative does he come to grips with God's mercy. And so as we come to look at it, I guess uh, over the next uh, month, uh, some of us are not Christians. And my prayer is that you would meet the God of mercy. He is very wonderful. He longs to see you come to know Jesus Christ. For some of us, I guess that it will be a little bit like Jonah or a little bit like the pastor. We may have been Christians for years, maybe for decades. And we like the fact that God is merciful upon us. That's good. We like the fact that we're forgiven, but not for them. We don't want them to be forgiven. Or we may just be indifferent to them. We're all right. I don't care about them. And hopefully we'll make the same journey that Jonah does. At least being encountering fully the God of mercy. I guess for all of us, my prayer would certainly be that we know this God of generous grace, mercy more deeply so that we long to speak of him, that we long to tell others quite how good it is that a God can forgive us anything we've done, even though he knows it all. Jonah is a slightly different book. I mean, because obviously it's one of the minor prophets. Uh, here we are in the minor prophets, but it's very different. There are no oracles from God. Uh, it's all narrative. That's very unusual for the minor prophets. Uh, so it's a bit more like reading Ruth or Esther or, or, or uh, One Kings or something like that. Um, that's an unusual feature of it. I guess the other unusual feature is it's really unlike most of the minor prophets, which are a warning of God's judgment. It's overwhelmingly about his mercy. It's his quest to see Jonah be a missionary to Nineveh so that that city, no matter how wicked it is, uh, is saved. Uh, the book is very obviously structured in two halves. You can see that. Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up against me. In chapter 3, verse 1, almost the same words. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. If you want the detail, there's a slightly boring table, but uh, uh, hopefully it makes the point. Uh, there's two halves to the book. And they all have, they, both halves have this same pattern, the same three frames to them. So there's the Lord meets with Jonah. We'll see that tonight, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and it's the same in chapter 3. Then you get an encounter between Jonah and the Gentiles. You get that in both sections of the book. Third, then the Lord meets with Jonah again. Uh, and we'll get uh, there next week, chapter 1, verse 17 to 2, 11, and the business is done. 
And again, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, the Lord meets with Jonah and their business is done. And then, there's another section that doesn't match. It doesn't have. Chapter 4, verses 5 to 11, it doesn't have a parallel in the first half. So as you'll read it, you're meant to go, ooh, why is that there? And the emphasis of uh, chapter 4, 5 to 11 are, Jonah, you need to have mercy. You need to care about the salvation of others, even though you don't. Because I do, says the Lord. As the, uh, uh, the book finishes with this question of God's, chapter 4, verse 11. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and so many animals? I care about those people destined for judgment. Why don't you, Jonah? So that's where the emphasis falls upon God's mercy. In contrast to believers, prophets, professionals, who are thrilled, delighted that God could be merciful upon them, but don't care about others, or in Jonah's case, hate others who can't bring themselves to offer forgiveness. Jonah wrestles then with reconciling God's justice against wicked people with his mercy. But we'll get there in the weeks to come. Thank you. We can probably get rid of that. Okay, uh, we're going to look at uh, chapter one tonight. I'm going to cut it three ways and then uh, push it in three directions. Okay, so it goes a bit like this. Uh, We'll see Jonah fleeing God's mercy, verses one to four. Uh, He and the sailors ignoring God's mercy, 5 to 14. And then finally accepting God's mercy, 14 to 17. Okay, those three. Fleeing God's mercy, ignoring God's mercy, and then accepting God's mercy. And then we'll see what it means for you and for me, perhaps. Okay, let's work through the text then. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, we see Jonah fleeing God's mercy. Let me read. Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, again, unlike most of the other minor prophets, no great detail here, no explanation. Who's king? Not telling you. What year are we? Not telling you. Uh, What do you know about Jonah? He's the son of Amittai. That's all I'm giving you. There's no great detail. I think the point is that this is a book that's meant to have universal application, so the details are kept uh, a little bit quiet. Now, we are told about Jonah elsewhere. 2 Kings 14 tells us that he's been a prophet in Israel. Uh, And so from that, you can date it around about 750 BC. Uh, And Jonah has been a prophet and a successful prophet in Israel. Despite uh, uh, wicked Jeroboam king at the time, the the borders of Israel have expanded out. So it's a good time to be a prophet. Jonah, son of Amittai, proclaimed that the borders of Israel are going to expand, and they did. Brilliant. But this is different. Now he's got to go to a pagan city that he hates. Now, Nineveh. Nineveh was a city in uh, Assyria, not the capital city. Uh, We're told in Genesis chapter chapter 10, it's the founding city, but it's wicked. So Nineveh, Assyrians, you think ISIS. You think the caliphate that they've set up. You can read in Nahum chapter 3, God describes uh, Nineveh as a wicked city. God says, Nahum chapter 3, woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victim. You can go to the British Museum 
and see uh, in freezes the self-description that the Assyrians and Ninevites wrote about themselves, boasting about when they captured people, they'd cut off their noses, they'd cut off their ears and let them bleed to death. They are a deeply unpleasant people. And more than that, they've already invaded Jonah's homeland. And he knows they're the superpower. Oh, in 722 BC, they'll come in and completely destroy Jonah's uh, homeland in the next generation. God says, go to these people, the wicked people who you're scared of. Go to them. And Jonah doesn't want to. Now, uh, so what do we get? Uh, we, that's the, the word of the Lord comes. Now, we have to wait until chapter 4 to really understand quite what's happening. But let's look across, uh, do a sneaky peek to chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah knows what the Lord is asking him to do. God says, go to the city of Nineveh, preach against it. But chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah knows. Uh, he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I don't want to go there. I hate those people, and you want me to go, so you'll have mercy upon them. No. Mercy for me, yes, please. Mercy for my, uh, my, uh, the people I like, my nation, yes, please. Mercy for them, no. Don't like them. Can't forgive them. So uh, just a little warning for you and for me, I guess. A warning for Christians. If we look around London and ever find ourselves thinking, or the UK, here is a culture which is becoming more hostile to the Christian faith, loosely. It's a bit harder to be known as a Christian publicly I don't like that. I don't like the fact that people are doing that. If you start to drift in that spirit, rather than, golly, there are people lost around me who need Jesus, then you're thinking a bit like Jonah, but you don't want to do that. The word of the Lord comes. Then we get the action. Verse 3, but Jonah. Verse 4, but the Lord. Uh, Jonah tries to run away. Verse 3, Jonah ran away from the Lord. And headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. The Lord said, go up to Nineveh. And Jonah went down to Joppa. Joppa's a pagan port. It's not an Israelite port. So he can go there and say, I want to go to Tarshish. And no one's going to ask him any awkward questions. Uh, and Tarshish probably modern Spain, but in Old Testament language, it's the ends of the earth. So you get to Isaiah 60, and the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth, even Tarshish. So in other words, he's fleeing as far away as he can possibly get. Now, I don't suppose Jonah is daft enough to think he can hide from God. But he wants to avoid him as much as possible. Maybe if I go away and go away from God's people in Israel, I can avoid obeying him. And it's a bit of a tangent, but I think lots of Christians sometimes occasionally think that if they're doing something wrong, look, I'm disobeying the Lord, and I know I am, so I won't go to church, because if I'm in church, people will tell me I'm disobeying the Lord, and I don't want that, so they drift away. It's not an uncommon sentiment, I guess. So I think Jonah is going for that. He's trying to flee from the God's command on his life. But the Lord, verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, 
And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. It's probably my favorite verse in the book. It probably shouldn't be, but it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, 18th, 19th century ships, they used to have the, the, the figurehead, often a woman on the front. Uh, I love the fact that he's personified here, the ship. And I can imagine the woman sort of turning around and saying, I'm going to break up. I'm going to break up. You know, I will. You know, I will. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not messing around here. Look, watch me. Woo, look there. The planks are pulling apart. I'm going to break up. Um, I think the point is, the reason the ship's personified is, Jonah can't get away. He thinks that the wind and the sea and the boat are going to take him away from the Lord. But the wind and the sea and the boat obey the Lord. And so they stop him from running away. I think that's why it gets personified, probably. The Lord uses these things to bring him back. The point being that God's plan cannot be thwarted. You can't stop God's plan. God had resolved he would use Jonah to preach to the Ninevites. And he did. And Jonah could have saved himself a whole lot of pain and a whole lot of miserable experience if he just obeyed the Lord. Because the same thing happened in the end. You can't thwart the Lord's plan. And you certainly can't stop him from sending his message the gospel message out. You can't do that. So Jonah couldn't flee God's mercy, even though he tried. Fleeing God's mercy, verses one to four. Okay, then the narrative moves on. Then he and the sailors try to ignore God's mercy, verses five to, 50, five to 14. I think it works a bit like this. You get um, a bit of a sandwich structure. Uh, you get an example of the futility of ignoring the Lord. Then you get a central dialogue uh, and then more futility of trying to disobey the Lord. So verses 5 and 6 is the first attempt to uh, to defy the Lord. Verse 5, all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the, into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Captain said to him, how could you... Oh, no, no, let's stop there. Let Jonah in deep sleep. Now, so the sailors try calling out to their gods... That's sort of their own version. They try self-reliance. Okay, well, let's chuck all our stuff overseas. I mean, it's clearly, these are sailors. This is what they do for a living. It's clearly stressful. They've just thrown a year's worth of profits, probably. I mean, it's something like a year's sailing trip, if it's right in Spain, from, uh, from Joppa to Tarshish and back. So a two-year round trip, something like that. They've got, this is their profit. They've just chucked overseas. They're clearly stressed, but they're relying upon themselves. Can we save ourselves? No. No, that doesn't do them any good. Chucking the stuff overseas doesn't cut it. What about Jonah? Well, he's gone down further. God said, go up to Nineveh. Jonah went down to Joppa, and he went down into the hold of the ship, where he lay down and went into a deep sleep. Just, again, this is a little tangent. Can, can I just point out, Jonah is, disobeying the God, Jonah is disobeying the Lord, and he feels fine. He's having a nice sleep. Sometimes, you know, when you disobey the Lord, you can have a clean conscience, even though you shouldn't do. Sometimes people say the silly thing, look, I know I'm having an adulterous affair, but my conscience before the Lord is fine, so it must be fine. I don't feel guilty, so I can't be guilty. It's what God wants me to do. How you feel, I couldn't give a stuff. Jonah slept like a baby. He shouldn't have done he should have been feeling bad. 
Yeah? Just because you feel fine doesn't mean everything's okay. That's just a tangent. But um, uh, conscience is clear, says Jonah. He's fast asleep, uh, uh, having nice Betty buys. Everyone else is stressed. The captain goes down to him, to these central dialogues. The captain went down to him and said, how could you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us so we'll not perish. Well, all right. So the sailors say to one another, verse 7, let's try this. Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for their calamity, this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. You can't resist the Lord when he's pursuing you. And so they barrage him with questions. Verse 8, tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Barrages him uh, with questions. Verse 9, Jonah replies, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Seriously, Jonah? I mean, that's a good state, that's a good sentence, it's a good statement. But you worship the Lord because it looks a lot like you're disobeying the Lord. And he commands the dry land and the seas, does he? So you think you can escape on the sea? Jonah, what you're saying and how you're living, they don't match up. There's an element of hypocrisy to you, Jonah, one might observe. Verse 10, though, they hear this and the sailors, this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running from the Lord because he'd already told them so. Jonah, if this is true, what have you done? We are in deep doo-doo. Jonah, this is a mess. So what should we do? Well, the sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied. It will become calm. I know this is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Hmm. So there's the dialogue at the center And then you're back to man's futility in saving himself. Because verse 13, well, instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they couldn't, for the sea grew even wilder than before. I think it's meant to be here a picture of, this is what we do as humans. We think, "Uh uh-oh, we're in problem. We've got a problem with God. But I'll sort it out. I can save myself. I, I, I know I've done things wrong in the past. But if from this point onwards I try and be a different person, a better person, then God will accept me. That's futile. You may as well try and row a boat into the eye of a storm. You can't save yourself. I think that's the point. So eventually, verse 14, they cry out for mercy. Question. Verse 12. I I don't have the answer, but let me just ask you. You might be able to have the answer. Verse 12. What should we do? And Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Why doesn't he just jump into the sea? It's my fault. If, if, if you throw me into the sea, everything will be fine. We'll just jump into the sea. Bizarre. But, or better than that, Jonah, why don't you just repent? It's my fault. Lord, I repent. That would do it. What? Why this? And I think Jonah's got himself into such a miserable situation, such a miserable mindset. He'd rather die than preach repentance. What a perverse place to be in. But I don't know, perhaps you and I can sometimes be pretty resistant to telling people about Jesus Christ. Maybe we're not saying we'd rather die than do it. 
but can be pretty perverse about it. Here is a message which people desperately need to hear, that they can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. And we don't. We do anything rather than tell people. It's quite perverse sometimes. Fleeing God's mercy, ignoring God's mercy, but finally for the sailors... And in a quirky sense, Jonah, they accept God's mercy, verses 14 to 17. So verse 14, here's the change. Uh, Verse 14, then they, the sailors, they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. Well, there's a change. They call out to the Lord. That's God's special name, his covenant name, the name he's given to his people, Israel. So they are now saying, The Lord, the God of Israel, you, you're the one that we trust at this moment in time. They only learned that name from Jonah in chapter 1, verse 9. So overall, the sailors are presented pretty positively. They care about this one man. Innocent man? He's not innocent. He's just told them in verse 12 that it's all his fault, that they're in this storm, that their lives are at risk, and they've just thrown away two years' wages. So he's not innocent, and yet they still don't want to see him die. So they care about one man, Jonah. Jonah doesn't care about 120,000 people. They're presented fairly positively, I think. But what do they do? Verse 15. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And at this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. I think that we're told they're converted. Lots of worship language here. They feared the Lord. Very different from verse 5. Verse 5, they're scared, they're afraid because there's a presenting threat to their life. Here, everything is calmed down. They fear the Lord because they worship him. They recognize who he is. They're gripped by a profound sense of awe. They make sacrifices to the Lord. They make vows to the Lord. They've been converted. It doesn't matter what you've done with your life. It's never too late to turn back to him. No matter what mistakes, what crimes, what wickedness, it's never too late to turn back to the Lord. They finally accept God's mercy. The overall message of the book of Jonah is, God is so wonderful, he pursues people with his mercy. He does so with Jonah, the individual, so that this wicked, abhorrent, city of Nineveh can hear of his mercy, can hear that there is a way back to him. God pursues with his mercy. If you're a Christian, you do know that. We've sung it. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. But dearly, he bought me with his precious blood. I've got that wrong, haven't I? But, you know, he pursues us. I think I was very struck at Christmas time just reading through the purposes that Jesus came. Of course, the one that stood out in my head was the Son of Man came to seek and serve the lost. Seek and, excuse me, seek and save the lost. That's why he came. That's the sort of God he is. And if you're a Christian, if we don't get that, we can be a bit like the pastor's dad, a bit like Jonah. I'm okay. But I seem to have lost track of who Jesus is. 
because he came to seek and save the lost. And if I'm not involved in that task, I've lost the plot a little bit. I guess it's the overall message of the book. But here are three, th- three things specific from tonight. Okay, three things. Uh, then we're done. Uh, you can scribble them down. Uh, one, all nations need to worship the God of heaven. All nations do. It doesn't matter if you're a pagan sailor from Tarshish or a prophet from Israel or a lawyer from the city or a farmer in Afghanistan or a gunman in northern Iraq. Everyone needs to worship the God of Israel, the Lord revealed most clearly in Jesus Christ. Everyone does. All need to turn away from pagan gods to worship the true God who created the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry lands. Everyone does. The Lord is the God who created all things. All people will give an account to him. The Lord said to Jonah, go. Go to the city of Nineveh and preach. And the Lord Jesus Christ said to his disciples, to his followers, to you and to me, go. Go make disciples of all nations. Go. Because people from every nation need Christ. And they're lost without him. The countless nationalities around us in this city need Christ. And they're lost without him. There's the first. All nations need to worship the God of heaven. Secondly, all people need a scapegoat to die for them. It's very striking, verse 14, they describe Jonah as an innocent man. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. He really isn't. As I say, he's put their lives at risk. He's destroyed two years' wages for them. He is not innocent. But I think we're being told something here. And again, question, why do they have to throw him overboard? Even if Jonah wants to run away from God, even if he wants to die, he really could jump. But I think the point we made, that we're meant to get here is that they have to do it. They have to trust God that somehow this works. So there's a certain act of faith from the pagan sailors picking up Jonah and throwing him into the water. Uh, and when this innocent man, Jonah, dies, the wrath of God disappears. And there's peace between the sailors and the Lord. There's peace between God and men because an innocent, anyway, an innocent one has been killed. And so we're meant to see that that's a shadow of one much greater than Jonah. That when Jesus Christ dies upon a cross, a truly innocent one, the wrath of God falls on him so that there can be peace between man and God reconciled. All nations need to worship the God of heaven. Second, all people need a scapegoat to die for them. Third and last, all believers can be used by the Lord in evangelism. It is striking. Who does what in the sailor's conversion? The Lord does pretty much everything. The Lord arranges all these circumstances. They didn't know that day they were going to get on board a ship to Joppa with a prophet. They didn't know really who he was. All these questions they ask him. The Lord arranges all the circumstances, throws a storm at them, all sorts of extraordinary events. What does Jonah do? He comes out with one statement, which is utterly hypocritical. 
because he's not living by it. All Jonah does is say, verse 9, I'm a Hebrew, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. If I was being honest with you, I'm not really worshipping him very well. In fact, I'm running away from him, and um, I'm a bit daft about it, because I think I can run away from him on the sea, but he does worship the sea. and the... So my doctrine and my practice are a million miles apart. I'm a terrible believer, but there it is. That's the one I worship. I'm so sorry. Now, you and I can do that. We could do that. No matter how, if you're a Christian here, in one sense, it doesn't matter what sort of mess your Christian life is in, you can still say, who are you? I'm a Christian. I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He made everything. And he died on a cross so that I could be forgiven. He could do that for you too. Now, hopefully your friends won't throw you into the sea. But they might just worship the Lord. If God can use stubborn, disobedient, obstinate Jonah, he can use me and he can use you. The funny thing is when you read this passage, uh, Jonah doesn't know, doesn't, Jonah's thrown overboard and verse, he doesn't get to hear verse 16. So Jonah doesn't really know that these sailors have been converted. He just says his piece and gets chucked over in a slightly different way. The sailors do this and they don't know that Jonah is saved. It's hilarious, really. None of them really knows what happens to the others. Uh, and yet in God's kindness, they're all shown mercy. You see, when you do your bit uh, and you have your stumbling attempt to tell someone about Jesus if you're a Christian, who knows what happens next? You don't know. You have to wait until glory most of the time. It's one of the Lord's little kindnesses to me in my life uh, that I saw a little snippet of this. Uh, A number of years, some will know, I used to be a school teacher uh, and uh, taught in different schools. The last school I taught at was in central London, taught there for four years. And for the four years I taught there, every year uh, I ran a little course uh, uh, for for one term, a number of lunchtimes, what Christians believe. And we've got, I I used to get about six, a dozen lads, uh, it was all boys' school, this one, um, come along and uh, go through the Christian basics. And, um, you know, I did that every year for four years. In fact, in my final year there, I sort of managed to organize, get external speakers in, somehow blagged the headmaster and sort of put posters up and advertised and ran a sort of little uh, week of events uh, every lunchtime and uh, after school. And, uh, you know, got about 50 odd uh, school kids each day along to, to these events. I never saw a single child become a Christian in my four years at that school. And I was pretty gutted about that. And then I started working for a church, and uh, about two, three months later, I spoke at a university lunch bar. So I went to Cambridge University, just spoke one lunchtime, evangelistic talk. Uh, And afterwards, a boy came up to me, Kellen Evans, look you, and um, he said, hello, sir. And that sort of non-compute, who's calling me, sir, what's that? Uh, Oh, hello, Kellen. Uh, He said, oh, look, I needed to come up and say hello. You know, when you went through those, the Christian basics, what Christians believe, I never quite got it out of my head. It nagged away at me. So my first week here at university, I saw a sign advertising a talk put on by the Christian Union. So I thought to myself, oh, I've never quite worked that out. But I went along and I became a Christian that night. I thought you'd want to know. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I do. It's a kindness of the Lord. One of those occasions you never know, but then you find out. And you and I, we never quite know what God does with our stumbling professions of faith in Jesus Christ. But if God can use Jonah, uncompassionate Jonah, he can use me, he can use you. Because at the end of the day, God is the evangelist. He is the one who wants to show mercy on people and he is the one who saves. And you and me, if you're a Christian here tonight, well, you just need to stumbling. I mean, you can do it a bit better than this, but let people know I'm a Christian. I think it's wonderful to follow Jesus Christ because he's forgiven me when he died on the cross and rose again and he can do that for you. Where that goes, who knows? It's not a lot. But it's the heartbeat of the living God to show mercy and have compassion on people who are lost. Let's pray together. And the Lord says, should I not have concern for the great city in which there are hundreds of thousands of people who don't know their right hand from their left and are facing judgment without a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Father, thank you that if we're believers here, you've had mercy upon us. Father, if we wouldn't yet call ourselves a Christian, if we're still thinking these things through, would we know that you're a God who delights to save and knowing you is so very wonderful. But Father, for those of us who are yours already, who are Christians, would we be captivated by the compassion you show so that we cannot but show it to others? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.